This is the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, for January 17, 2020. Investigators again want Apple to unlock an iPhone, claims of access to Skype calls, some Google news, a new vulnerability called Cable Haunt emerges, and in case you didn't know, there's geolocation data in your photographs. Now here are the hosts of the Intego Mac Podcast, veteran Mac journalist Kirk McElhern and Intego's chief security analyst, Josh Long. Hey, Josh, how are you? What's new? I'm doing pretty well. Um, what's new? I don't know. There's a, a new Mac Pro design that's rack mountable for all those system administrators Ooh. out there. Ooh, system administrators. Yeah. Ooh, Josh, this excites you, doesn't it? <laughs> the idea of spending $6,500 on a Mac, and that's just for the basic model. Because, I mean, let's face it, if you bought a rack mounted Mac Pro, you wouldn't not add RAM or a better video card, et cetera. Yeah, this might be a little too little too late because uh, Apple, I think, really lost a lot of, um, you know, high-end, you know, Apple server people uh, back in the day when they switched to the non-rack mount design of the the trash can, the black, you know, trash can Mac Pro uh, from the XServe. So, yeah, I don't know if this is going to win anybody back. It's five rack units, which is really tall, really tall. But, um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe maybe there's some professionals out there who, for some reason, still want an Apple server, even though Apple has basically killed their server software. I, I don't know. Who's but you don't have to this. use it as a server. I see this as something that would go into, say, a recording studio where they've got other rack-mounted hardware and they just want to put it in a rack to keep it out of the way or maybe to have a, a single power supply for it. Ah, uh, yeah. So, okay. That's a fair point. I used to run macOS Server on my Mac Mini, which I used for sharing files and a bunch of other things. And when uh, Catalina came around, I stopped because, as you say, there's no reason, there's no server features anymore, or most of the server features are hidden. You can activate them using the command line, um, but you don't have that easy-to-manage server that you did in the past. Okay, well, let's get to some news. And and this is like um, one of these stories that comes back again. There was a shooting in Pensacola, and the FBI has asked Apple for help cracking the gunman's iPhones. Now, we've done this dance. The FBI says you should be able to do it, and Apple says we can't. It's encrypted. And then someone, some politician says, well, you should put a back door in and said we won't because that means that anyone's data can be uh, accessed if someone figures out how to get into the back door. Right. It's it's the same thing all over again. And uh, this time, however, I think Apple is being very open and transparent with the public, with the media about here's exactly what we're doing. So the FBI can't claim that we're being uncooperative. And I think that uh, Apple probably learned some things uh, from last time and with the San Bernardino shooting years ago. You know, it's one of those things where um, Apple has to be very careful about how they play this because 
one, they don't want to look like a bad guy because there's going to definitely be people who are of the political opinion that, you know, if you are not putting in a back door, then you're letting the terrorists win. And, and that's, you know, that's one perspective. Another perspective is, okay, but uh, if you want to protect your customers' privacy and, and not, I mean, literally all customers um, and their, the security of their data, you need to make sure that you're not putting in backdoors because if you put in a backdoor that law enforcement and, you know, legitimate professionals uh, are allowed to use, that also means that there's a backdoor that someone else who's not supposed to have access can also access. And when you think about how many congressmen and senators and even the president use iPhones, uh, do you want these phones to be crackable? Right, right. I mean, that's that's a very important consideration. And one thing that is very infrequently brought up whenever there's this outrage and demand for Apple to introduce a backdoor. So this is, this is in the news again, it's, it's happening all over again. Um, and in the meantime, Celebrite, by the way, which is one of these companies that makes a, a tool for breaking into iPhones, they've come out and said, Oh yeah, we're, we're now supporting that checkmate vulnerability that we talked about on the podcast a few months ago. Um, that, works with uh, iPhone 10 and iPhone 8 and older models. Um, it's an exploit that enables jailbreaking and other things so that you can uh, basically hack uh, one of these older iPhone models if you have physical access to it. And so Celebrite is also taking advantage of this opportunity to say, oh yeah, and we support that now. Um, and interestingly, uh from a photo that the FBI has on their website, it does look like this, uh, at least one of the two phones um, is a model that uh, probably is old enough that it would fall under the, the uh, checkmate vulnerability. So essentially the FBI can crack these phones without Apple needing to put a backdoor in them. Of course, Apple can't put a backdoor in them now because they would need to be updated. And obviously they can't be updated until they're unlocked, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of politics going on here, not the topic of our podcast, but um, I think it's really important to realize that, that this is an all or nothing thing. If you put a backdoor in, eventually bad people will be able to get in. Absolutely. Yep. Okay, so we're talking on Skype again, as we do every week, and we're looking at each other. Hi, Josh. How you doing? I see you're wearing a, hey. a hacker hoodie today. It says, get root, or got root. Is Which is it? Get root or got root? <laughs> got root. Yeah, in the style of the got milk, if anyone remembers those commercials. Right. And so it turns out The Guardian reported that Skype audio is graded, which means listened to and checked, by workers in China with no security measures. Josh, did you know they're listening in on us? On Skype? Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, this has been like public knowledge for I don't know how long, for many years. Well, I didn't know. You didn't? <laughs> no, I did. I thought Skype was the most secure thing in the world. Okay. Well, we're being a little sarcastic here, but Skype... We are. Yeah. Skype is, is not uh, known <laughs> to, to be the most secure platform, uh, quite the opposite, actually. So there, there is encryption and stuff going on, you know, but the thing is that behind the scenes, um, you're, 
your calls are not necessarily handled in the most secure way, or they at least they haven't historically been. In this latest, you know, revelation, which is not much of a revelation, uh, somebody claims that they worked in China in Beijing for for two years, and during that that time, they claim that they had thousands of potentially sensitive recordings on their personal laptop that all came from Skype and Cortana, uh, which is Microsoft's digital assistant, the equivalent of Siri and Alexa. It's, it's, it's one of those things where we, you know, we, we've actually talked about this not too long ago on the show with that, you know, this was also going on with Alexa and, and Siri not that long ago um, where, yep. You had uh, people who were employed by the company, uh, whether directly employed or maybe they worked for a third party that was doing some validation and and testing and things. And uh, they do actually record some of these things and use it for product improvement. Um, Well, now Apple has, in the latest version of iOS, you may have noticed that there's uh, a little prompt that asks you, hey, do you want your interactions with Siri to be able to improve the product. And they do explain this to you. you, And so it is something you have to agree to. But at the time, uh, apparently that this person worked for, you know, doing this validation for Skype and Cortana for Microsoft, uh, there were no security measures they claim, and they were able to just get full access to thousands of potentially sensitive recordings. Okay, in other news, we've got a couple things to say about Google this week. You can now use an iPhone as a Google security key for two-factor authentication. Uh, we always talk about two-factor authentication. Sometimes you do it through an app on a device, and I'll link to an article on the Intercomac security blog discussing that. Google has always had a limit for certain features that require an actual physical security key. And this is a little dongle that you'd plug into the USB port Uh, of a computer. And now they're allowing you to do this with an iPhone instead. Right. And so basically what they're allowing you to do is to have an iPhone with Bluetooth enabled uh, that's in physical proximity to the machine that you're logging into. Um, And this behaves uh, in a very similar way to those like Yubico type, um, you know, universal two factor authentication dongles that you can carry around and put on your keychain. Now, everyone has a phone with them. And so if you if your phone of choice happens to be an iPhone, Google is now supporting that as a way of well, sort of proving that you are who you say you are by having a uh, a device. So you can now use your iPhone for that, which is great. In other Google news, Google's Chromium blog, which is the blog that talks about the framework that is in the Chrome uh, web browser, they've announced a new initiative called Privacy Sandbox. And what they want to do is eliminate the use of third-party cookies. The cookies are these little bits of text that your browser records that allow you to be identified from one website to another, and particularly to Google. Um, this strikes me as they're not getting rid of the means to identify you. They're just getting rid of one means of identifying you and trying to find others, aren't they? Yeah. What's funny about this to me is that, you know, everyone has this perception that cookies are like the ultimate evil, right? That's how everyone tracks you across the internet. And once upon a time, 
um, that was probably the main way that you were tracked across the internet. But now there are so many ways to track you that cookies are just one of many. But, you know, at the same, having said that, I, I, I will say that it's good that they're looking at ways that they can make tracking you a little more difficult. And I'm always for that whenever they're coming up with new innovations in that area, whether it's Apple or, or Google in this case. So good on them for trying to improve that. Um, there are a number of other ways that you can be tracked. And so, you know, it, this is not... This they're is obviously not-, <laughs> not removing all the ways you can be tracked because they would kill their business model. Well, yeah, that's actually a fair point. Um, if you really care about privacy, perhaps you shouldn't be using a, a Chrome or Google browser in the first place. But good point. Uh, also, in related news, um, Google also is planning to eliminate user agent strings or phase them out. Uh, user agent strings are are one of the ways that a website can tell what browser you're using. And historically, websites would need to know what browser you're using so they could serve you the right version of a web page. Because if you were using Internet Explorer, it rendered websites totally differently from Firefox and, and you know other browsers. And you know it's gotten to the point where really most browsers render web pages the same. And so that user agent, which is great for web designers, because it, I remember back yeah. in the day you would have to have specific code for Internet Explorer on your website. Exactly. Yeah. So this is great from a web design and usability perspective. Um, But that also means that user user agent strings are mostly really used for tracking purposes now. And so uh, Google is also saying we're kind of going to phase out. We're not really going to update our user agent strings anymore. And uh, that will also help a little bit with reducing the ways that sites can track you. But they'll find other ways to track us. (laughs) Um, The the thing about the user agent string is, so I've got Safari open, I have the develop menu, and the user agent lets me choose Safari, Um, it lets me choose Safari for the iPhone, iPod Touch, or iPad, I can choose Microsoft Edge, Google Chrome for Mac or Windows, Firefox for Mac or Windows, and then other, if I've got another browser. I actually use this sometimes when I want to post a photo to Instagram on the desktop, because there's no way to do this. Um, so I have to make my Safari look like it's Safari for iPhone. It changes the interface. I can post the photo. It's like, why would they want, not want you to post a photo from the desktop if there's such an easy workaround? It's not that it's not possible. It's all you have to do is pretend. I mean, it's like putting on a pair of sunglasses to be able to do it, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so user agents historically have been something that you can actually hack and, and you know, to get into websites that maybe they don't want you to use on a desktop, like your example. Um, I've seen other cases where a website swears that you have to use Internet Explorer. There's no other way to access this website. And, uh, well, just tweaking your user agent string is often all it takes to, you know, fully access that website. It's just they didn't want to support other browsers. And so they, they claimed that you had to use Internet Explorer. Okay, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about location data in photos that you've taken on your iPhone or perhaps on another camera and how it's pretty easy for someone to find out where you took those photos if you're not careful. If you or someone you know has got a new MacBook or iMac or switched to the Mac from Windows, be sure to check out Intego's new Mac User Center. 
It's a one-stop collection of the things you'll need to know about using your Mac. Intego's new Mac User Center covers plenty of the basics to get you running smoothly and smartly in no time. Of course, one of the first steps you'll want to take is to install Mac security software from Intego to keep yourself protected. And right now, Intego Mac Podcast listeners can get 40% savings on Intego software, including Mac Premium Bundle X9. Mac Premium Bundle X9 is a suite of terrific Intego software that includes the antivirus, anti-phishing, and anti-spyware protection of Intego Virus Barrier, home and hotspot firewall security from Intego Net Barrier, parental controls for peace of mind from Intego Content Barrier, and much more to help protect, secure, and organize your Mac. Download the free trial of Mac Premium Bundle X9 from Intego.com today. And then use the promo code PODCAST19 at checkout to save 40%. That's PODCAST19 to save 40% on complete Mac protection and security with Intego's Mac Premium Bundle X9. Intego, devoted to protecting Apple products since 1997. Visit Intego.com today. Before we discuss location data in photos, there is some new, well, it's a vulnerability, but it's a vulnerability that already has its own website, logo, theme song, t-shirt, and everything else. What is it for, before you explain what Cable Haunt is, what is it with these people trying to claim ownership of vulnerabilities like this? Well, it's the researchers, you know, want to make sure that people are aware of what they think is a really big deal and that other people should really know about. And, you know, so the one of the ways that they can push that or promote things in such a way is to give it its own website, a special scary sounding name that the media can latch onto. Because I mean, you know, if you're watching a, a television news program or listening to NPR or something, you want you know, uh, something that you can hear and immediately go, oh, yeah, that's that's new scary thing. And so they called this cable haunt. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> my, my cable modem is haunted. Well, okay. So what this is, they here's how they describe it. They say it's a critical vulnerability found in cable modems from various manufacturers across the world, and it enables remote attackers to execute arbitrary code on your modem indirectly through an endpoint on your modem. So in other words, basically, they if if somebody can attack a computer on your network and your modem is vulnerable to this cable haunt vulnerability, um, then they can do some nasty things, man in the middle attacks and, and other sorts of things like that. Um, they can change out your, your modem firmware and all sorts of like really actually kind of scary things if you think about it, but, um, they have to be able to get into your computer and, and then from there pivot to, messing around with your modem. So they're Oh, so they can't attack you directly through from the internet to the modem. It's not like somebody can know your public IP address and just attack your modem, right? Right. Okay. So so yes, there is a remote element to this, but they have to get into a computer on your network first. And that could be to be fair, it could be maybe uh, you know, you're tricked by a web page and uh you know, something, one thing leads to another and 
now somebody has access to your computer through through some other method, and then they use that to attack your modem. But they have to do something to get inside of your network before they can attack your modem. Um, I spent an inordinate amount of time testing my cable modem the other day to see whether it was vulnerable. Really? Uh, you were worried. I wasn't. I wouldn't say I was worried necessarily, but I had to check because okay. you know, we were going to be talking about it on the podcast. Um, they yes. do uh, have a script that you can use to test your modem. Uh, it, it's a little complicated to to uh, use the script, so I wouldn't necessarily recommend this for everybody. Basically, yeah, some modems are vulnerable. Uh, they list some of the modems that are vulnerable, but um, really there's kind of a lot. Um, and if you have a certain internet service provider that provides you with a modem, which is often the case for, for a cable modem internet access, um, then you may just be vulnerable by default. I, in my case, I bring my own modem. And so I happen to have a model that apparently is not affected by this vulnerability, or if it is, um, at least, uh, you know, maybe somebody already hacked my modem and, and uh, they make it look there like it's not vulnerable anymore. Uh, I don't really believe that that's the case, but getting back to your question of why, why does this matter? Why do they have to go to the trouble of putting up a website and, and naming Wait, it? Can I guess? That? Can I guess? Go ahead. They're trying to get attention. Well, because they work in a security company in Denmark and they want people to notice the name of their company. Yeah. They don't exactly say that, but that, that is kind of sort of potentially one of the reasons for this but yeah well yes they do say it because at the bottom of the web page they have a linkedin and twitter links that go to the name of their company that don't go to anything specific about cable haunt so yes and they also say well and in their frequently asked questions they say a branded vulnerability is that really warranted and they say Perhaps not, and this isn't as bad as Heartbleed, Eternal Blue, Meltdown, Rowhammer. We've mentioned some of those on on our podcast before. Um, but they say, you know, and they're like, we totally get that. But we felt like it was important because we had to get the word out there. Because there's all these cable modem manufacturers. There's all these ISPs. And it's really hard to communicate this sort of thing to everybody who needs to know this. And because yeah, they're, they're on a crusade. Yeah, they're on a crusade. So, yep. um, well, now the world knows about it. And so hopefully ISPs and cable modem manufacturers will take it seriously and do something to, to fix this. Okay. You remember you sent me some photos of that barbecue you had last year on 4th of July? Yes. I will play along and say, yes, I totally remember that, Kirk. (laughs) Well, you know that I was able to look in those photos that you took with your iPhone and find exactly where you live, don't you? (gasps) Really? You're kidding me. Yes. Imagine, because your iPhone stores location data in photos it takes. Not only your iPhone, other cameras do. You won't generally see this in larger uh, DSLRs or mirrorless cameras. You'll see this in the small sort of travel camera, but people who use larger cameras may often use an app because they want to record the location data. And this is really useful when you're on vacation and you want to remember, oh, I got this great sunset. You know, we were sitting on this ledge and the sunset and the sea and everything. And you can go into the photos app and you can go into the map and see, and you can find all the photos. And it's really useful. The problem comes when you share these photos with people, and if you don't know how to get rid of this location data, they can find where you were, and in some cases, where you are. So 
you didn't really send me a photo of your barbecue, but if you had, I would know where you live. Um, just a quick anecdote. Someone I know posted some photos on his website recently, and he happens to have a fair amount of valuable hardware in his home, and he didn't remove the location data. And I was speaking to him the other day, and I said, oh, you're in the third house from the corner on the street across from the thing there, right? And he was like, hmm. So we have an article I wrote on the Intego Mac security blog, how to remove GPS location data from photos on iPhone or Mac. This location data is really precise, and I've illustrated the article with some pictures of standing stones in Avebury. Now, Avebury is about 45 minutes from Stonehenge. It's not as well known as Stonehenge, and it's actually an area where there's roads that go through the middle of this circle, and you can walk around. You don't have to pay an admission. What you can see in the Photos app is there's a little map. It shows exactly where I took the photo. I show another screenshot um, in an app called How to Geo, which is an app that you would use to add this geotagging information to photos if it's not there. And if you look at the satellite image where the pinpoint is, you can see compared to the photo, this is the exact spot where I am. This is not within five meters or 10 meters. It's exactly where I am. This data, again, it's very useful because you may want to know where you are, but do you want to share photos with people that show, I don't know, where your kids go to play, where you work, um, where you've just uh, had your vacation or where your vacation home is or something like that? Right. Yeah. And in some cases, if you're in a really public uh, location on vacation, Maybe that's not so terrible because maybe like if you're at the Eiffel Tower, yeah. people will recognize it. Well, right. I mean, people are going to tell anyway. They don't need to look at at the exactly. geolocation data of your photo anyway. In some cases, but uh, so in in those kind of situations, yeah, it doesn't really matter if you're posting a photo online that has a geotag in it. But what most people probably don't realize is that really every photo that you take on your phone by default is geotagged. And that means photos at your home. Uh, you know, if uh, photos at uh, other, you know, family members locations, as you said, at, at work, um, not everyone necessarily wants everyone online to know where they work. <laughs> you know, uh, maybe you work for a national, you know, security organization and, uh, you know, that's not necessarily public knowledge and maybe they, they don't want you to reveal where you, you know, your home base is. Yeah, I think in that case, they would have you turn off your phone when you get to Langley, or they would have instructed you how to turn this feature off, because it's possible to turn it off. Probably, yes, but... We would hope so. (laughs) It's happened before, we've mentioned on the show, that people who worked at a U.S. military base uh, went out for a jog, and their jogging app tracked their location and and tracked their route. And um, unfortunately, that data became public knowledge. And so then it sort of revealed where this base was. Um, And so there's, there's things like that, that you have to be sensitive about when it comes to this geolocation data. And, and so one important thing is to, first of all, realize that yes, this is in all of your photos by default. Yeah. And so in, in the article, I explained how to remove this data. What's interesting is when you share photos on iOS, you have to explicitly turn off the location setting each time you share a photo. On the Mac, it's different. It's a global setting in the preferences of Apple Photos. If you manage your photos with a different app, you'll have to look into their settings and they'll generally have um, the, a similar setting. 
I also explain how you can remove location data from other photos that you may have. So you can open a photo in preview, and if you click the little button for the inspector, there is a remove location info button, so you can delete that. Now, there are some tools that can do this. Uh, there's one called Image Optim. Um, it's an app that I use when I'm working on screenshots and even photos to put on the Intego blog on my website, etc., it can take a JPEG image and reduce it in size by about half without removing any of the photo uh, information. It's just there's all sorts of extra stuff. One of the things it does do is remove all the EXIF data, and EXIF data is location, the date and time of the photo, which camera, etc. The easiest way, if you're really worried about this, is to go into your iPhone, um, settings, privacy, location, services, camera, and choose never, and then it will never record anything. Obviously, if you do go on vacation and do want locations, you'll have to remember to turn it back on, but then turn it off again. I think for me, I, I like the idea of having all of my photos geotagged by default. If you are someone like me who really likes having your photos geotagged, just beware that there is that geotag in every photo. And so when you share your photo, you know, even if it's to an online service, you know, uh, uh, you're posting it to something like Facebook or Instagram, in some cases they will strip out that data. Some, some online services will do that for you, but others will just post the same raw photo that you upload to them. That's where uh, it becomes a case where it could be uh, of you, you could be violating your own privacy by posting those photos. And not just your own. This has other implications. In fact, we have a photo uh, in the article. I'm not sure where it was taken, but it was taken someplace where there are rhinoceri. Is that the plural of rhinoceros? <laughs> rhinoceri, Rhinoceroses? I, so. I don't know. One or the other. Rhinoceroses. And so there's a little sign that says, please be careful when sharing photos on social media. They can lead poachers to our rhino. Turn off geotag function and do not disclose where the photo was taken. Wasn't there a story last summer where there was this big bloom of flowers in California and people started sharing these photos on social media and they found where it was and they all went there and trampled the flowers just to get a couple of selfies? Oh, horrible. But it's really true. I mean, these things actually happen. These are real world examples um, where a photo was taken and it was uh, misused just because the geotag was out there. Be aware that this information is there. Be aware that it can lead people to where you live, where you work, where your children are, places you go regularly. I mean, you take photos of that softball game every Saturday and malicious people can find out that you're at a softball game every Saturday. Or your, your kid's performance at a school play. Yes, but you see, it's the repetition that's interesting because if people can assume you're at the softball game every Saturday, they'll know you're not at home every Saturday when it's time for the softball game. Right. I, I guess it all depends on uh, the attacker, what they're trying to do. But uh, you can you can easily see that there's a number of different ways that somebody could use it to kidnap your child or break into your home when you're not there. Th these sound implausible maybe, but uh, I mean, these things really have happened. If somebody is targeting you and they're stalking you online, um, they can really use location data against you. Okay. So check out the article on the Mac security blog. There'll be links in the show notes and until next week, Josh, don't take any photos and stay secure. <laughs> All right. Stay secure. Thanks for listening to the Intego Mac podcast the voice of Mac security with your hosts, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long to get every weekly episode. Be sure to subscribe at Apple podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. And 
If you can, leave a rating, a like, or a review. Links to topics and information mentioned in the podcast can be found in the online show notes for the episode at podcast.intego.com. The Intego website is also where to find details on the full line of Intego security and utility software. Intego.com. <laughs>